Welcome back from your break. And if you're joining us online, you'll see that there is a link at the bottom of the uh, panel there uh, to Bible Gateway. If you don't have a copy of your own scriptures, uh, you can click that link and you can enter in the search part of the engine, Psalm chapter 42. The message is from Psalm 43, but I'm going to begin in a moment reading from Psalm 42, and you'll see the connections uh, almost immediately uh, with Psalm 43, a very short psalm. Uh, 42 uh, is uh, connected to it and will help us to reflect on the psalm today. In In a message I've entitled, Help for the Restless Soul, this comes from our favorite verse or verses series. Um, the person who requested this is serving downstairs, but uh, he or she uh, is aware that uh, we're doing their favorite verses today, uh, and I can see why, uh, particularly verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 43, he or she requested this. So it's my privilege to um, share this with us. This is the first time this psalm has been uh, taught uh, or preached out of at Crossway in our history, our 21-year history, we have done something like 80 of the Psalms over those times. Some we've done more than once for understandable reasons. Some we've only done once. This one uh, is um, a new Psalm for us. And I was reflecting with Dave earlier this morning uh, before we prayed uh, that in light of what's in here, uh, this is a gem that I'm glad we didn't miss or, or overlook. So, um, Psalm 43, but we're going to begin. I know it sounds uh, that I'm contradicting myself by reading Psalm 42, uh, the first six verses, and then I'll read Psalm 43 in its entirety. This is God's word for us this morning, Psalm 42, beginning with verse 1. If it's not projected behind me, you can just listen as it's poetry, and it's beautiful uh, poetry, and you will find these words familiar. To the choir master, a maskal of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man deliver me 
for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God and to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these words, these precious words from the Psalms, the Psalms which have brought so much comfort hope, consolation, an expression of your care uh, for the Christian's life, and in some cases, Lord, the, the gateway, the entrance into, into your kingdom as they read these words, perhaps unknowingly, Lord, as you're drawing them to reveal your Son. So we pray, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning, speak to us from what may be familiar words maybe even for some favorite words, but Lord, whether they be familiar or new, grant us the gift of faith that we would lay hold of you through them and be led to, as the psalmist declared you to be, our exceeding joy. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the experience that I often have in the morning with a foggy windshield. Is that just a phenomenon in my driving? Or uh, as the temperatures get colder outside and you're driving in your car to your destination and you've got your defroster cranked but your engine's still warming up, the first couple of miles, Gus, I'm sorry to say, I'm driving with a foggy windshield. I may be crouched down to look out the little part that's not foggy, but then again, I am the safest driver in our family, and so it is a skill that apparently they want nothing of, but they do say, there he goes, Mr. Safety driving down the road. This is a psalm written for people who feel like not just driving in a cold morning in New, in New England, this is a psalm for people who feel like living the Christian life is like driving with a foggy windshield all the time. And it's not just for Christians, right? Our, our culture uh, have been experiencing in some profound ways life where their, their perspective of, of, of their life is foggy. In what was the most read article in the New York Times last year, the most read, surprised me, more read than any of the articles that are on the front page or above the fold, and if you think of the events of last year, it's really hard to imagine how was this the most read article by the New York Times in print and digitally than it was an article addressing people who were living life with a foggy windshield. And it was entitled, the writer was Adam Grant, 
The article was entitled, which I recently not only read, but shared with some of my students. Of course, now I'm not going to see the, the title. Um, basically, addressing what he called this feeling of blah. The feeling of blah um, in what he describes as a languishing soul. Adam Grant, a, an industrial psychologist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, teaches at the Wharton Business School, so he's working with some of the brightest and students, business students in the world. He's also consulted a number of companies, uh, Google, uh, Apple, uh, Microsoft, uh, here in Massachusetts, some of the leading universities. And he's also a psychologist to some celebrities, uh, like uh, Bill Gates, if that name. Uh, Prince Harry, and they've all had one thing in common. Either they're working with people or themselves, they're struggling with what they're calling the blahs, the blahs or languishing. I had never heard this word languishing before, but in coining it, and Adam Grant did coin it, he described it as this in that editorial that he wrote, op-ed piece for the New York Times, he described it as a sense of stagnation and emptiness, muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. Let's read that again. It's really a sense of stagnation and emptiness, muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. Now, he wrote this after the pandemic had ended, or at least the lockdowns and the he wrote this at a time where people were returning to normalcy. Masks were off, routines were restored, they're back in the office, they're busy, their, their hobbies have been restored, their, their recreational activities, are, they're with their friends, and, and the people that he's interacting with, both in industry and in his classroom, both young and old, are describing their emotions and their mood as blah a sense of purposelessness. There isn't the energy. They're still very busy. They're working hard. They're, 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 they're moving towards their goals for achievement, but they would describe their emotional state stagnation or going through life with a foggy windshield. So it begs the question, doesn't it? Does Scripture speak to us in a way that provides care and comfort as well as constructive, constructive advice when we're feeling, well, like life is a foggy windshield. People who are in a season of bereavement will describe that sense of loss, even as they resume routines and are busy with life, in what Adam Grant calls their languishing. But it's not just a, a relationship. It can be a loss of reputation. It can be the death of a dream. And you're bereaving that. Uh, it can be profound disappointment in something that has defined your life for maybe your entire life. And you're languishing. You're muddling through your days. You're still busy. But you're looking at your life now through a foggy windshield. 
these two psalms provide so much care and hope and comfort for the languishing. Because the psalmist, the son of Korah, the songwriter, if you will, from the Levites, at least his family was, the people who attended the temple service is struggling with his windshield, his perspective, and he's languishing. Let's look at the passage again, because this is a psalm that reminds our hearts that our hearts will remain restless until they find their rest in Christ, and that's my main point. Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Christ. And the psalmist's first, first idea here is he longs for God in an uncertain world. Verse 1 of chapter 43, he writes this, Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me. Verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Then note this, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? We aren't given the particular biographical details. We could speculate, but clearly he is longing for God, verse 2, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Verse 1, vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause. But this is how his mood or his perspective or his emotional turmoil is impacting him. Why, verse 2, have you, speaking of the Lord, rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And lest, lest we be unclear about this man's spiritual maturity, chapter 42, which is companion, the 43, says he likens his relationship to God as a deer that plant, pants for flowing streams. My, pant, my soul pants for you, O God. My soul, verse 2, chapter 42, thirsts for you, for the living God. Yet, verse 3, my tears have been my food all day and all night. Why I say, while they say to me, where is your God? Like the psalmist, we long for the Lord in an uncertain world. And when our soul is languishing and we're experiencing a, a season of stagnation that, which has nothing to do with our activity, we can be very active and even prioritizing what we're doing and, and busy. We may even be accomplishing certain things which are important things, we can still have that sense or that mood or that emotional state of feeling distant from God. It's interesting in chapter 42, just looking again uh, in verse 6, uh, 
the, the son of Korah cites these, these mountains from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Do you see that in your text? It says, my soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and Hermon and Mount Mazar. We don't know the exact location of this, but this psalmist is composing this psalm about 130 miles from the temple. He's removed from Jerusalem. He's not at home. He's, that's a, that's a two-day journey, if, if more, away. And he must be there for a period of time because he wants to return but can't because what he associates with the temple, where his family serves, and with the temple service, which he participates in, both through the singing that they do and the teaching of the word that would occur there, and then, of course, the sacrifices, what he associates with that space, that place, is exceeding joy. But he can't get there. And so he's struggling then, in light of this homesickness, with a sense, a longing, a deep longing for God that feels like rejection. That's what he says in verse two. Why have you rejected me? I get it. I, I, I get it when there is a, a unfulfilled desire that God has given you, that when there is a deferred hope that seems like a good hope, a, 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 a legitimate hope, a sincere hope that goes unsatisfied, when there, is, when there are those things on our windshield, our perspective, that when we reflect on them, diminish our joy, cause us to question the goodness of God, rob us of our confidence that the Lord is being faithful to me, faithful to my promises. That may be a symptom, that may be an indicator that you're languishing, even if you are a faithful member of the church, even if you are regularly in the scriptures, even if you're like me, you are blasting at decibel levels that are probably unhealthy for my ears, Abby's playlist from the book of Colossians. When that restlessness begins to express itself in the midst of all that spiritual activity and you can't quite flip the switch that undoes it, I suggest spiritually this psalm gives us direction. I brought with me a passport. I probably shouldn't bring it to church because I'm prone to loon things, lose things, but I had to have my passport out recently uh, to verify that I really am Bauer Evans. Hard to believe with a name like that people question that I'm not Bauer Evans. But I needed two forms of ID and so I brought my passport and showed my ID and and, um, and so the person who was signing off on my paperwork for uh, my TSA pre-screen, whatever that is, uh, said, yes, you must be him and you're approved and now you, can, you don't have to wait in line for three hours at Logan to uh, go through TSA. When I got my passport out, I noticed that Linda, I didn't ask permission to share this illustration, she hasn't thrown out any of her passports. There's like six of them in there, maybe Maybe 10 or 15, I mean, no, but there were more than one. There was quite a few because she has traveled with her family and then traveled as a single adult 
before I knew her, to places far and wide. And so she keeps those passports, right, as mementos. And you open them up and you see the stamps and there's visas there. And, you know, they smell a little badly in the safe deposit box. But still, the beauty of a passport is not only you get to remember, right, where you've been, but when you're far from home, it lets you back in the country, doesn't it? Can I make a suggestion? You don't need to buy a passport from the United States government when you feel languishing to discover you're not far from home. We need the Psalms. We need these Psalms in particular to direct us, to point us, to interrupt us, and to remind us, oh no, no, this, this is where I find exceeding joy. The God of Psalm 42 and 43, written for the languishing, leads me again and again and again and again through a process to my Savior who is my joy. That's why he cries out in verse three and following, which this is my second point. He says, send out your light and your truth. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. In verse two he said, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Now he says, send out your light, send out your truth, let them lead me to your dwelling. My second point is we must look up to God as our refuge. As I'm driving to church this morning and it's cloudy and it's windy and, and uh, we're listening to the uh, worship songs that we'll be singing, I couldn't help but notice against the gray skies and the wind that's causing my car to I couldn't help but notice that fire tower there at the World War I, World War II Memorial Park there in North Attleboro that's on the hill and this light is flashing. It's a dark sky, it's windy, it's gonna rain, but that fire tower with that blinking light, you just can't help but notice it. Even I would notice it, safe drivers I am, looking straight ahead at all times and driving the speed limit. That's what the psalmist is praying. He's saying, Lord, I need you to turn on the flashing light. I need to see it, because I'm not seeing it. Because right now, what I feel is you've rejected me, because I got people that are saying things about me, and it's stinging my reputation. And I'm also 130 miles from where I want to be, and I, I should be, perhaps, at the temple, but I'm 130 miles away, I'm in Ocean City, or wherever that is in, in, in Israel, and you are my exceeding joy. So I'm looking up to you, I'm asking you to be my refuge, and I need you to turn on the light of Scripture so that I will find in you the refuge One of the things that I think is true, right, right now in Christendom is, understandably, we're celebrating our spiritual freedom in Christ, right? It's wonderful. We talked about it last Sunday. And worship songs, this has been pointed out to me, are all about freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ. 
He's freed me from my sins. Hallelujah. He's freed me from the punishment for sins. Glory to God. He's freed me from being uh, captive uh, to the spiritual powers. But I don't hear the same gusto in worship. God, you're my refuge. Send out your light to me that I will hide myself in you today. Not a freedom, but more like I want to be inside these walls, whatever they are, Lord, your refuge, and find protection. And so what fills that vacuum when Christians don't see God as both their refuge and their freedom is they turn to alternative spiritualities, don't they? To make sense of their foggy windshield. Astrology. Yes. Christians, readings, getting in contact with bereaved. I don't believe in that, but in all manner of alternative spiritualities where the Lord is saying, no, no, the psalmist is saying, cause your bright light of your word, your truth to now arrest my attention, but lead me back to you, the hiding place that is God, the protective walls of the security found in your word and amongst your people, your commands as well as your gracious blessings. Yes, this is for the psalmist his desperate cry as he looks to God, lead me, lead me to that place of safety, bring me to your holy hill. Then, verse four, I will go to the altar of God and to God my exceeding joy, I will praise you with the lyre. C.S. Lewis once observed of his generation, the great apologist that he was, that The challenge for Christians in his generation was not that they demanded too much from God, but they asked so little of him. Lord, I want want to be free in terms of the freedom that Scripture speaks of. But I'm aware of these captivities. And instead of going to God and saying, send forth your light and your truth, let them lead me, I either settle with them or I turn to something else to address them. Lord, I want to reignite my passion for you. I I need a fresh passion for you. So this generation, right, which I love this generation, lay their spiritual search, in many ways is walking away from the church, the gathered, and finding passion for God online or elsewhere. I understand that, but scripture doesn't say that's where the exceeding joy in Jesus is found. I'm I'm confident, I am confident, because the Lord is faithful. 
that now will the, the church be renewed and restored in a way that a younger generation says, not only do I need it, but I'm indispensable to shaping it so it'll be effective, but that they will come to that place where we came, many of us came at our conversion, like the church was not my idea in the first place. It was the Lord's. When he saved me, he called me out of myself and into Jesus and then joined me with other people so that we could walk the race together towards him who is our exceeding joy. But lastly, to know, to deep down know that with the psalmist, not only do I not settle with what may want to take my soul captive, or do I not walk away from the community of faith? But I say with the psalmist that the true purpose of my life and the highest possession I could ever attain to, verse 4, is spiritual communion with the Lord. Verse 4, then I will go to the altar of God and to God my exceeding joy. That the highest possession I could ever attain in this life is spiritual communion with the Lord in the company of others who are seeking Jesus first. Last point. We put our hope in God that he is our exceeding joy. I think this is a process and not an event. I think the biblical truths of Psalm 43 make it very clear that when my windshield is foggy and my soul, spiritually speaking, is languishing, that the remedy that this psalmist discovers God is working out with him, through him, is actually a process that he discovers, and it can be a great lesson for us. So like a skilled physician, the writer of this psalm, I think lays out three steps for us, and I close with these, that you can call them remedies for, for the blahs, remedy for the spiritual languishing. First, he learns, doesn't he, to analyze his spiritual condition without being overwhelmed by it. This is a psalmist who, who is reflecting on his soul. My soul thirsts for God, verse 2. Verse 3, my tears have been my food all day and all night. When something so preoccupies you that it, it just, it's like it's your meal and you can't get away from it. Verse five, my soul is cast down within me. Verse, for chapter 43, uh, uh, verse two, why have you rejected me? So he's, being, he's verbalizing some of his doubts in light of his circumstances. And of course, verse one, he hears other voices in his head that seem to drown out the Lord's voice through scripture and the Lord's voice through the spirit and the Lord's voice through others that accuse him or, or say things about him or deceitful things that uh, diminish his reputation. 
he learns to analyze his condition in a way that he isn't overwhelmed by it. And he starts to perhaps put on paper the reasons for his discouragement. He actually, he starts a list. These are the reasons I'm discouraged. That's the first step. Learn to analyze your condition without being overwhelmed by it, by identifying, perhaps with the help of others, the reason. Secondly, he begins to talk to his soul, doesn't he? Instead of simply listening to his soul. He starts to talk to his soul. Verse 5 of chapter 43 Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He has been saying, I am sore in heart. I am in darkness. I am discouraged. And now he begins to talk to himself. In in many ways, he's learning how to preach the biblical truth that he knows to himself, having identified the causes of his discouragement so that he can begin to feed on the very truths that he's sharing with us, so that he can feed on its benefits that he's sharing us, that he can be renewed and feed on the grace and hope held out in the scriptures themselves. He begins to talk to his soul instead of listening to his soul which is not easy, I grant you that. It requires work, God won't do it for us, but you see what the psalmist does three times in this psalm, three times. He says to himself, why are you cast down? Hope in God, I shall again praise me. When Linda says something once to me, I may or may not hear it, unless it's that tone of voice where I better hear it. If she says something twice to me, the same thing, I'm starting to give attention to it. Like, something must be wrong. But when she says something three times to me, three times to me, I mean, I don't know much, but those are marching orders at that point. God, through his word, is saying through Asaph, the psalmist, speak to yourself this truth. God is your exceeding joy, hope, in him, put our trust in him. Believe that I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. Last remedy. Last remedy is yes, try this at home, but find a friend and do it with them too. My friends not only enjoy playing golf with me, I love playing golf, we're gonna play in two weeks. We talk about smoked meat all the time, I love smoking meat, we're smoking meat for one of our children today, it's his birthday, this weekend. But my friends, when they hear me saying things repeatedly that diminish in some ways the faithfulness and goodness of God in my life, they get my attention and say, no, you don't believe that. Now, you're expressing a doubt, that's fine. Let me hear your doubts. You're struggling in your circumstances because your windshield is, but if they're hearing that repeatedly, they put their arm around me and gently and sometimes not so gently and say, hey, 
you're a Christian. Right? Yes. Christ died for you. Out of great love, he sacrificed for you. He's living for you. You're in Christ. They might not say it all that way. But hope in God. That's, what, that's how we can be an encouragement to the discouraged and a, a soul comforter to those who are languishing. Listening patiently, leaning in, being gentle, not giving a lot of advice. But where you start to hear the broken record of hopelessness taking the needle off the record, starting a different song through the gospel. That's why I think union with Christ is not just essential that we get it, but it's neglect at times in the church concerns me because it's such a benefit for the languishing soul to understand that he is in me and I am in him and therefore his faithfulness to me has been settled. Whether I'm doing well or not, performing well or not, driving well or not, seeing things clear or not, we can hope in God with exceeding joy because our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning and maybe perhaps you're listening online, I wanna invite you to find your ultimate rest in Christ. Until you do, you will look to other people and other things, good things and good people, to find your, what your soul thirsts for. But it will not satisfy you. And ultimately, you will miss entirely the greatest gift of rest and fulfillment and joy that Christ makes possible. I wasn't born a Christian I wasn't even raised a Christian, but my restlessness as a young adult led me to Christ, and he has satisfied me, not through a bowl full of cherries life, believe me, but through a God who in the midst of my difficulties not only is near me, but turns on the blinking lights in the fire towers of his truth and leads me home again. You need that, I invite you to receive Christ. And for the Christian, I just say this to you as your closing exhortation and encouragement. God is your refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Selah. You know what Selah means in Scripture? Selah means that when you're given the perspective that the Scripture gives and the Lord begins to wipe away the fog, you do what Dave led us in this morning during communion. You stop, you rest, and you reflect Jesus, thank you. You are my exceeding joy. Don't move. Don't turn on something. Lock the door so your kids can't find you. Fix your mind on that. And you will find, as Asaph found, that 
our hearts are restless till they find their rest in Christ, but he is near to us if you're a Christian, and the rest that he offers us is here today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the reminder from these precious psalms found in your word. There's good news for the languishing. And more than news, Lord, there is a person. There is a living person who brings hope and help when we feel stuck in the spiritual blahs. Lord, ultimately, we thank you, Jesus, that before you could address our heart condition, you had to address our sinful condition. So we praise you again for your substitutionary death. Lord, you died in our place. You shed your blood for our forgiveness of sins. You suffered, and in dying and rising again, Lord, we can experience again and again the exceeding joy of being completely forgiven. And now in Christ, blameless, holy, and beloved, praise be for your glorious grace. But Lord, as we journey, we do experience circumstances that cloud our perspective. And so we pray, Lord, by your spirit and through your word, this song that we're about to sing, as well as the encouragement of others. Lord, help us, would you? Lead us, please, to the altar of God, to your holy hill, not some far off place. Lord, right here, right now, finding you, our exceeding joy. We give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, amen. Let's stand.